0: Talk Radio. Hello everyone, on today's episode of the A.J. Bruno Show, we'll be talking about the subject of potential extraterrestrial activity on Earth with Stanton Friedman, a nuclear physicist and one of the most prominent and knowledgeable ufologists of our time. We're just waiting here to get him on the line. It should not be long. Uh, in the meantime, I do want to mention, if you're not yet doing so, be sure to follow our new Twitter account, it is at Reagan Worldwide. That's at Reagan Worldwide. So there is lots of good stuff on there. You'll get updates about the show when there's new episodes, so you you can be sure not to miss an episode. And uh, this should be a good one we have going here as well. So it should not be long until we get him on. Um, so we're going to be discussing this issue both from a scientific aspect and also from a political one as well. It's obviously a controversial topic. A lot of different opinions on the matter. And we're going to try to explore that as much as possible. And we have him on the line right now. Hello, Mr. Friedman. That's
1: That's me. Sorry about that.
0: (laughs) No problem. Great to finally talk to you. So, Uh, To to start with, I know you began your career by working for a a bunch of majorly influential American corporations. Um, So I know the broad strokes of what you were involved with in some of those, but can you elaborate more on that period and some of the most interesting projects you you were involved with?
1: Yeah, my specialty was working on canceled government-sponsored research and development (laughs) programs. Uh, Three years with General Electric Aircraft Nuclear Propulsion Department, It was a big effort. In 1958, our budget was $100 million. We employed over 3,000 people, of whom 1,100 were engineers and scientists. So this wasn't a bunch of professors and a few grad students sitting around the table. It was a major effort. My work was in radiation shielding, because if you're going to build a nuclear airplane, uh, weight is a major consideration, let me put it that way, because you need shielding for the reactor, Since uh, neutrons and gamma rays like to get out and air has to come in, you've got to do something to counteract the the opposing tendencies, in other words. (laughs) Then I spent uh, three years uh, working at Aerojet General Nucleonics, uh, compact nuclear reactors for space vehicle applications, uh, and that program got canceled. And I spent three years at uh, General Motors uh, Allison Division in... uh, Indianapolis, and we were looking at compact reactors uh, that would be moved from place to place. You know, you're going to invade Antarctica, bring a power source with you. And finally, in a sense, the most successful and interesting and, uh, that's the word I want, frustrating, I worked for Westinghouse Astronuclear Lab in Pittsburgh, and our job was building uh, nuclear rockets and. Uh, you can more than double the payload to Mars, for example, if you have a nuclear rocket. And the high point was we successfully tested the NRX a 6 nuclear rocket reactor propulsion system. This little VC was less than 7 feet in diameter and operated at a power level of four, uh, yeah, 1,100 megawatts, which is half the power of Hoover Dam. Uh, Liquid hydrogen comes in, or gaseous hydrogen comes in, uh, gets liquefied and gasified, uh, and gets expelled at 4,000 degrees. And uh, the test was a great success, somewhat to our surprise. (laughs) And uh, Aerojet General also built one, only 1,000 megawatts, and Los Alamos built and tested Big Brother, if you will, Phoebus 2B, power level was 4,000 megawatts, twice the power of Hoover Dam in something, you know, less than seven feet in diameter. I mean, you'd have to carry along your hydrogen. But after all, hydrogen is the lightest and most abundant element in the universe, so that's a good thing. So as soon as all three tests were successful, they canceled the program. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then I thought I had a job. I, I was booked for a job with McDonnell Douglas. Santa Monica, California, and uh, would you believe that uh, as I'm driving across the country, thinking about what a great chance my job would be to figure out how flying saucers worked, Uh, and I couldn't have asked for a more appropriate job, if you will. And uh, driving across the country, I heard on the radio that the program was canceled. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Uh, I gave my first UFO lecture in 1967, and when, when this all happened, I got a family to feed and so forth, so I started getting on the phone early in the morning to book lectures at colleges, and here I am, a lot of years later, more than 700 colleges, 100 professional groups. Uh, All 50 states, 10 provinces, and 19 other countries. The last one was uh, Bulgaria. Bulgaria. Everybody likes UFOs in
0: Bulgaria.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Be a a ufologist. See the world. That's ufologist, Uh, not ufoologist.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's good advice. advice. So (laughs) how did you first get – sorry?
1: Well, I I read a book in 1958 – Air Force officer Edward J. Ruppelt had been head of Project Blue Book in the early fifties and he wrote a book, uh, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects. And I was ordering books from Marlborough, I think it was, I think they're still selling books. And I needed one more book so I wouldn't have to pay shipping charges. I'm kind of a cheapskate. And there was this book, so it sounded intriguing and uh, the program I was working on was uh, co-sponsored by the Atomic Energy Commission and the Air Force. And he had been an Air Force officer, so how could I go wrong? The book intrigued me. didn't convince me, but it intrigued me, and I wanted to read more. And I shared it with a neighbor. Charlie was 10 years older than I was, an engineer. And uh, I was impressed. Charlie was more impressed than I was. And when <laughs> I saw him 10 years later, I was giving a lecture at an electrical engineering group that he was a member of. And the first thing he said when he was with his wife was, We knew you when you didn't believe in flying saucers. And that was comforting. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I, I and I, then I, a, a big step was at the University of California Berkeley Library. Uh, I found, much to my surprise, I wasn't looking for it. I'd already read 10 books on flying saucers, and some of them were nonsense. But here was Project Blue Book Special Report number 14. That was published by uh, Leon Davidson, a privately published edition of a government report. had data on 3,201 sightings. That's a lot. Wow. And it also had a press release which lied. And I don't like hmm. being lied to. The Secretary of the Air Force was quoted as saying, quote, On the basis of this study, we believe that no objects such as those properly described as flying saucers have overflown the United States. Even the unknown 3% could have been identified as conventional phenomena or illusions if more complete observational data had been available. Wait a minute. The unknowns weren't 3%. They're 21.5%. I call that a lie. I mean, 215 is not three rounded off. <laughs> and they also, uh, the report included uh, comparisons between the unknowns and the knowns, statistical cross-comparison on the basis of six different characteristics, apparent Hmm. size, color, shape, speed, that sort of thing, indicated that the probability that the unknowns, the only ones we're interested in, were just misknowns, was less than 1%. Hmm. That was impressive. The better the quality of the sighting, based on the background of the observer and all that sort of thing, the more likely to be unidentifiable. So, I, I was really angry. I joined APRO and NICAP, the two UFO groups at that time. Neither one exists any longer. And uh, to get their newsletters. And, you know, my first lecture, uh, we had a little UFO group in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, and uh, my first lecture uh, was uh, to a, a local group. Of our group, I I got so involved that uh, uh, I spoke. And what shocked me, I was mm. expecting to get a hard time from people, you know, nobody believes in flying saucers that sort of thing, right. and I got a great responses. And uh, I spoke at a joint meeting of the local sections of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics and the Institute of Electrical Engineers. We had 400 people there, and there were no nasty questions. And I got lucky. One day, I'm going to work. My car was in the garage, and Joanne worked at Westinghouse also. And we're talking. I said, I'd really like to speak at Carnegie Mellon. And she said, well, did you talk to the dean? Well, no, I talked to Dr. So-and-so, and he wasn't interested. She said, "San, the dean's my husband. He's heard you on the radio. Give him a call. So I did and he booked me for three or four weeks later but uh it was during the day so I'd have to take some time off work so his last question was how much do you want being an idiot i said $100 thinking he'd knock me down to 50 well he bought me at 100 but then he told me because i knew his wife how much he was paying the other people in the series 1500 1700 <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and the talk went so well that he sent a letter to the agency through whom he booked the expensive guys, and they booked me at the Engineering Society of Detroit for $300 in expenses. I was in the big time, and they were sold out two weeks in advance for 1,008 people. I couldn't help but respect that, you know? So that's what really got me rolling. Uh, And, you know, I have found that People are interested in the subject. They're not well informed. I used to talk about five large scale scientific studies, and I'd ask after each one, I'd describe it, show a slide. You remember when people used slides instead of PowerPoint, you know? (laughs) And uh, typically, uh, fewer than 2% had read any of them. So that helped uh, disarm the nasty, noisy negativists, the naysayers, if you will. Hmm. I had one guy, what was it? Gulf Oil Lab uh, Research Center it was dinner and the talk. And he interrupted me, and I said, I'll talk about that later. And the second time, finally, the boss says, Let him finish. Okay, I turned to him. Well, I'm sure one could come to another conclusions than the one you've come to. And I said, Well, as I recall now, you hadn't read any of those five large scale scientific studies, right? Well, yes. That's the difference between us, isn't it? I gave you my conclusions. I referred you to the evidence. I've read all those documents. You've read none of them. Whose opinion's worth more? Not another word from him.
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, wow. That, uh, now, that seems to happen quite often, I think. So uh, getting into some of the, the more specifics, so one of the events that most people at least know in general about would obviously be Roswell. So you were the first yep. civilian investigator um, who went there and actually yeah. documented everything. Uh, what were some of the things well, it, you uncovered? Only, that you found, it, you know? Yeah,
1: it wasn't a question of uh, going there wasn't the big thing. The, the, mm-hmm. it, it happened, you know, by, by accident, if you will. Uh, I was doing three interviews at a television station in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, before giving a lecture that night at Louisiana State University. And I'd done all three interviews. The students had brought me there. And when I got finished, the program uh, producer uh, said, gee, you know, the guy you ought to talk to is Jesse Marcel, brilliant investigator that I am. I said, who's he? (laughs) His his next sentence changed my life. He handled wreckage in one of those saucers you were interested in when he was in the military. What? What do you know about him? Well, he's a great guy. We're ham radio buddies. And I found out later Jesse had asked him while they were talking about radio uh, for more about the story because he'd seen the original article, and he didn't tell him anymore. So I was intrigued. Uh, the next morning I was at the airport early and called information. And for your listeners, that's how we used to get phone numbers you know, before <laughs> everybody had a computer on their desk. I uh, got a number for Jesse A. Marcel, and he told me his story, and I was very favorably impressed. Part of it is my nuclear background. He was the intelligence officer of the 509th Composite Bomb Group, which was based in Roswell. This was in the late 40s. Hmm. And they were the guys who dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And two more, that was in forty-five. two more uh, test sequence a couple of years later I had to respect those guys, you don't pick dinks to do that the base commander Colonel Blanchard at at that time uh, turns on he went on to West Pointer went on to be a four star general and was vice chief of staff of the Air Force when he died of a massive heart attack so we're not talking about dinks here uh, you don't get to be in those positions especially back then uh, you know, without having a lot on the ball, uh, you're not sweeping the floor and they need somebody else to do something. You know? <laughs> and so, uh, that got me started. And I had heard a little bit earlier from a woman whose son was a forest ranger and he'd had a sighting, and He said, she ought to talk to mom. She had a great sighting. She was uh, working in Roswell and, uh, I did talk to Mama, and she had remembered names of people, and I followed up as best I could, but didn't get very far. And then I had this television station thing. And then, you know, sometimes you get lucky. Uh, it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do I know about Roswell, New Mexico? Uh, I heard about Roswell, Georgia, but, you know, so I look at an editor and publisher, and they have a newspaper in Roswell. Well, the Roswell Daily Record. So I called there, and one of the articles I had mentioned that a guy named Walter Hout, Hout, his name is spelled three different ways in three different articles, hmm. uh, was he, he was uh, he was involved. He put out the story about the Roswell crash in '47. So before I could finish, I asked. They asked me what I wanted, and I told them. Before I could finish, the essentially, oh, his wife works here. I had not the slightest idea when I called the Roswell Daily Worker. I work daily. Anyway, the Roswell Daily Newspaper. I'm thinking we have a Fredericton Daily Gleaner where I live, and I always get the two mixed up. Anyway, uh, talked to the wife, and then I talked to Walter, and he helped found the museum, and. He had been not just a public information officer, but during the war, he was a navigator, bombardier. And he dropped the instrument package during one of the second round of uh, atom bomb tests. And you pick your best guy to do that. We didn't have atom bombs to waste at that time. (laughs) And if you don't get the instrument package in the right place at the right time, you've wasted one. And we don't want to do that. So. Walter was very, very special. He's gone now. But for people who wonder about such things, the Museum International UFO Museum and Research Center in Roswell uh, last year had 223,000 visitors, and it's not on the way to anywhere. It's 200 miles from Albuquerque, 200 miles from Amarillo, 200 miles from El Paso. So if you're there, it's because you want to be there, and people come from all over the world bring their kids, and yeah, I they have costume parades sometimes. I'm going to be the parade, uh, whatever you call the guy. <laughs> the grand Marshal? Yeah. Grand, oh yeah, I like it. that term. <laughs> <laughs> grand Marshal. At this year's Roswell Festival, it's the uh, first or so week in July, right after July 4th this year. And they tell me they're going to be big doings and be prepared, so I will be prepared because I have announced that I'm retiring Sometime soon, and you know sixty years is a long enough time don't you think <laughs> <Probably> i <84 laughs> right.
0: I wish I got full disclosure by now, but
1: you know well you know it, it's 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 a strange world we live in people are interested all over the world and i'm i mean i've lectured in australia i've lectured in saudi arabia in S- South Korea in China, and a bunch of European countries in Argentina. And Brazil and Mexico, and people are interested all over the world. Mm. And they're curious. And nice things have happened from my viewpoint. Uh, in other words, our knowledge of the world, the universe around us, whatever you want, the galaxy around us, has changed drastically. Uh, I can remember when we thought this was the only solar system there was, and we're on the only planet in the solar system that's got. Uh, oxygen, you know, and water and stuff. So aren't right, we well, special, which is a terrible thought when you think, yeah, in World War II we killed 50 million people.
0: <laughs> oh. <laughs> this, this
1: is this the best that God can offer? Come on. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, you know, well, let's be realistic. I don't know what the kids learn in school, but I do know that there were bombing raids over Europe with 300 airplanes flying, you know, in formation dropping bombs as they went. Mm. And, you know, that's pretty scary. But one of the big things we found, thanks to the Kepler satellite, I mean, Frank Drake of the SETI movement, S-E-T-I, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, I think it really stands for silly effort to investigate. But anyway, that's the point. Frank, in 1960, said that there might be as many as 6,000 places that could be sending signals our way. Well, uh, one of the things we've done is we put up a lot of satellites that get information you can't get from down at the surface of the planet. And the Kepler is looking for planets. And it's amazingly sensitive. And now there, we, the latest number, 1.6 planets per star. Now, if you think about that, within 100 light years of here, which is just down the street, really, Uh, there are 10,000 stars or 16,000 planets. I'm not saying they're all inhabited. Of course not. But as a nuclear guy, for example, uranium-235 is the isotope we want to use in nuclear weapons. We do a lot about nuclear weapons. And uh, it's seven-tenths of one percent of all uranium atoms. Do we say, oh, it's worthless, it's less than 1%? No, we say, let's spend umpteen million dollars to build a mile-long facility. This is during World War II. Right. To pump a gas, a uranium-based gas, through a long system, a mile-long system. And the lighter isotope, U-235, moves faster than the heavier one, U-238. And pretty soon you're enriching it. Hmm. Now, we were using 5% of all the electricity produced in the United States in the middle of the war to enrich uranium isotopes, in secret, mind you. Uh, I know there are people who say governments can't keep secrets. Uh, Well, that's simply not true. I had a security clearance for 14 years, Hmm. and I will absolutely guarantee you that governments can keep secrets, Uh, lots of them. And they're big programs. It's not just aircraft nuclear propulsion. No. And, uh, they're classifications, classified stuff everywhere. And so it, it, it's a, it, it changes our picture of ourselves. Uh, obviously, we're not the big cheeses around. And why anybody no. would be surprised that anybody is coming here when you say, well, why don't they talk to us? Yeah, land on the White House lawn, which is a no-fly zone. <laughs> no.
0: Well, sure well there's that story about later, Eisenhower potentially having met with them. Yeah.
1: What? Yeah.
0: There's that story about Eisenhower allegedly having met with some ETs in person.
1: Yes, and I don't know what to make of that story. Of all the people around, Ike would have been the best one, I suppose. You know, people don't realize. Here we have the guy who led the uh, Western forces during World War II and because of the cold war suddenly we're working with enemies germany and japan hmm. now who could have put that coalition together uh, not many uh eisenhower was a diplomat uh he was a good solid military man i'm not putting down his nuclear, uh, his uh, you know military capabilities but just uh if there was anybody who would likely wanted to meet with aliens it would have been ike Now, what they said to each other, I don't know whether the meeting actually took place. I don't know. Uh, And, you know, if people, (laughs) the government plays some funny games. One of the big intelligence agencies is the NSA. stands for never says anything, no such agency, you know. Uh, Anyway, uh, we use freedom of information. Legal suit went after their UFO files. First they said, yes, they have them. Then we tried to get copies of them. And with a lot of legal maneuvering, we finally uh, did get 156 pages of top secret Umbra UFO data from the NSA. There was a little problem. Uh, there was one, you could read one sentence per page, everything else was whited out.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, the CIA blacked out everything. But it's interesting if recently somebody tried to get another set of those. <laughs> uh, gee, guys, we can't find them. They can't find the originals. Wow, no. <laughs> they're it <divided> out. So. <laughs> but the government never lies. I mean, after all, no. obviously they don't. They don't take good care of classified stuff because they can't find it. <laughs> right? Well, I mean, you know, it, it's funny. We went after the CIA, incidentally, and we got uh, oh, seven or eight hundred pages up through secret, but and those were, you know, eighty, ninety, or more percent blacked out. My favorite one is a page that said only deny in toto. They couldn't even release eight words like they had on a number of other pages. It took me years to get a couple of the formerly top secret pages, and they were almost all blacked out. So, yes, the government can keep secrets. And the media has been lax in going after the government. Uh, You know, I'd, I'd love to set up an organization that solicited from former military guys, uh, you know, their stories. Because when I check my audiences at the end of my lectures, this is after giving a lecture, you understand. How many people here believe they've seen what I would consider to be a flying saucer? Just raise your hand, and I, you know, won't ask for names or anything. So I point and count, and it's typically 10%. There's a lot of people. If you have an audience, I've had audiences over 2,000. You know, so we're talking to lots of people. And then I ask, okay, how many of you reported what you saw? Typically, 90 percent of the hands go down. So sightings are common. Reports are not so common. And I know when when people come up to me at my table, I've got six books out there. I co-authored three of them and sole authored three of them. And they come, they autograph and stuff. Uh, they want to tell me about their sighting. Sure. So they told me, and I said, "Did you report it?" No. Why not? They would think I was some kind of a nut. Hmm. I've had a wife ask her husband, "Why did you raise your hand when you said that?" because <laughs> well, I had a sighting. Well, you never told me about it. Well, we're just married. I thought you'd laugh at me, and I mean, that's the kind of situation we're <laughs> in. <the world>. No. <laughs> so no. there's no. and and there's something else we we need to consider. Back in the 1600s, Bishop Usher, uh, he was a sex fiend. He went through the Bible looking at all the begats, you know, back in time. Yeah. Uh, there were a lot of begats. And he concluded by adding, you know, up all the time frames here, that the world was created in 4004 B.C., so about 6,000 years ago, a rough number. And now we know we left out six zeroes. because Earth is at least 4 billion years old, and the universe is 13 or so billion years. I mean, I wasn't around at the beginning. I'm an old guy, but I'm not that old. (laughs) My my point is that that's part of the picture. We we need a new view of who we are and all the rest of that. And let me correct another false impression. Well, people say, what's the matter, Friedman? Have you forgotten Einstein? You can't go faster than the speed of light. Look how long it would take Can you to get to any of those places out there or them to get here. I didn't forget about Einstein. There is, how shall I put it, uh, a temptation to say, well, you can't go fast than the speed of light, so if you want to go to a place that's 20 light years away, it's, it's got to take you a minimum of 20 years. That's not really true because that's only half an Einstein. The other part is that as time, and this sounds weird, I recognize that, as time slows down, uh, time does slow down as you go fast. as you get closer and closer to the speed of light, time slows down. Now, that big accelerator over in CERN, uh, the high, whatever it's called, uh, the particles go 99.99. 99.99% 99.99% of the speed of light. Now, how much does time slow down? Well, it depends on how fast you go. But at 99.99% of the speed of light, you can go uh, umpteen light years in less than two years. And slows down a lot when you're going really fast. And it only takes, there's another place where people get tripped up, At 1g acceleration, the force of gravity where we are, uh, it only takes a little less than a year to get close to the speed of light. And I've asked audiences, multiple choice question, does it take 1,000 years, 100 years, 10, 1? How many think it's 1,000? How many think it's, you know, go around and down the line. The the right answer is one. It takes one year at 1g to get close to the speed of light. So you go out, come back, marry your granddaughter's best friend. <laughs> because, you know, time is slowed down for you, not for them. So it's a peculiar world we live in. And I get people saying all kinds of silly things. You know, uh, it's it's distressing when scientists say silly things. Uh, a couple of areas where most scientists don't know much one is keeping secrets. They expect to see scientific work appear in peer-reviewed journals, scientific journals. They can't imagine that enormous amounts of work gets done at great cost in secret, uh, And they also don't know much about advanced technology. I mean, working on nuclear rocket engines, you develop an appreciation. Uh, well, to give you an idea how much things have changed within my lifetime, uh, how the amount of energy we're able to use for destruction, in World War II, a big bomb was a 10-ton blockbuster. It released the energy of 10 tons of dynamite. Wow. made a hole in the ground, too. Uh In 1945, to end World War II, we dropped a couple of atomic bombs, tested one before that, so three altogether in that year, and released the energy of 15,000 tons of dynamite. That was an atomic bomb. Now, the real humdinger was the H-bomb, a fusion device We didn't even know about fission and fusion until 1938. We didn't know that there were neutrons until 1932. But we've been learning. But the Russians dropped, uh, the first H-bomb was dropped in 1952, released the energy of 10 million tons of TNT. And the Russians dropped, they called it Tsar Bomba, about 1960. Release the energy of 57 million tons of TNT in one stinking bomb. Now, the reason I go into this is not to scare people, though it should, hmm. but to recognize that when you know about fission and fusion, you can talk about going and bothering your neighbors. I did a study, was involved in a study of fusion propulsion. That's what goes on in all the stars, nuclear fusion. I did a study in 1962 at Aerojet General. And would you believe we decided that, yes, you could go to the stars with nuclear fusion? If you got the dough, you can go. Can I answer that to get it off the hook? Sure. <laughs> Goodbye. Don't call back. Goodbye. <laughs> Somebody, I get these salesmen trying to sell stuff. So I'm, I'm not, I not usually impolite to people, but uh, it's aggravating. Anyway, what what I'm saying is, for the first time in man's history now, we can seriously talk about going to the stars. And if we can talk mm. about that now, then how much longer ago could our neighbors have done that? Mm. You, you see what I'm getting at?
0: Right. No, I, I wonder Changes. how far ahead we are compared to. Um, what you know, what we know about there was a whole issue with that uh, Gary McKinnon guy who got into NASA's computers and found evidence of a potential military uh, secret space fleet. I and mean, what do you make of something like that? Do you think that's possibly true? Or I'm not.
1: I, I I have my doubts about a secret space fleet. Uh, mm-hmm. Takes an awful lot of dough and a lot of space and a lot of people. And what has come of it? Why would we still be building the old stuff? if we've got something new and better. So no. I, I, I'm a, I, I don't believe it until I see better evidence. In other words, there are loads of good stories around. I used to read a lot of science fiction when I was young. I don't much anymore. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, the real world is exciting enough. And, no. uh, you know, technology, uh, my mantra is that technological progress comes from doing things differently in unpredictable ways. The future is not an extrapolation of the past. You have to change how you do things. I mean, I used a slide rule when I started work in industry. And most people tell you what's the slide rule? (laughs) Simple little device, and uh, everybody used them. Nobel Prize winners used them, but we don't anymore. Uh, I mean, I I look at a computer sitting on my desk. If I'd had this capability 50 years ago, wow. Hmm. Computers were big, they took all kinds of air conditioning, they took a room in the building way up there, and you never touched a uh, computer. You filled out input data sheets, and uh, somebody typed them up, and you got a deck of cards, and an entirely different world, and, and people would laugh if you wanted to do something like that today. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so, I, I, if we've got, I'm not saying there aren't secrets being kept, that's not what I'm saying, but about an advanced Space program, et cetera, et cetera. I haven't seen any signs of it. And I also, there's something else going on here, too. I think if we're going to go to the stars, it ought to be an earthling craft, not Russian, Chinese, American, Greek, uh, whatever. The uh, planet is a small unit. We all have something in common on this planet. We shouldn't be fighting each other. We should be helping each other. And when you look at the military budget, a trillion dollars this year. You have a lot of kids who starve every year. You know, we should be doing something about that, I think. So right. I've got my own biases.
0: You know? <laughs> no, no, especially in, in space exploration, I don't think enough is being put in that. I mean, if if we haven't been to Mars yet, the fact that it's going to take, you know, possibly like 70 Plus years before going from the moon to Mars, I think is just ridiculous.
1: Well, yeah, what we need is leadership. I'm a big fan of uh, the late Admiral Hyman Rickover, the nuclear navy, and uh, he was a damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead kind of guy. Uh, You don't like where we're going, get off the ship, you know. But Mm. you realize in World War II U-boats, you see them in the crossword puzzles. You know, Uh, U-boats could stay underwater for a day. They need oxygen for the diesels and stuff, you know. Hmm. Uh, Today, Hmm. nuclear-powered submarines can go around the world underwater, uh, which is a pretty neat trick. And we have what what really amazes me is the nuclear-powered aircraft carriers, huge monsters, and they can operate for 18 years without refueling. Now, ask any ship captain how he would like to be able to move without waiting for the tanker, you know. <laughs> Eighteen years a long time. Full speed ahead. And so Rickover knew how to get the job done. And I, I worked on programs where I just wish there was a Rickover at the top of it who said, okay, this is our goal. Let's get with it. Uh, and I sat at a NASA meeting uh, what should we do with the nuclear rocket? We could do this, we could do that, we could do something else. Uh, Earth uh, orbit, lunar orbit, uh, base on the moon, uh, a bunch of choices. They didn't have the faintest idea what they wanted to do with the darn thing. So we had three successful tests. What do we do? We cancel the program. We don't know what we want to do with that. You know, it, 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 aggravation. No, And definitely. Uh, I just, just want to add that, remember, this is an international problem. Not just because I've spoken to 19 countries, hmm. but because, you know, you read papers from other people and uh, talk to others who've traveled around. There's a great deal of interest all over the world, but there's confusion. Where do we go from here? You know, what do we do? How do we all get together? And these are problems we haven't learned to solve, have we? No,
0: that's true. And I wonder how much information is actually shared between different governments, because I know in Canada you have the Foreign Minister of Defense Paul Hellyer, and he's outspoken on this issue, but he clearly yes. you know wasn't in the know when he was in power. So,
1: No, I was there when he gave his first talk, and uh, a good man, uh, and he's, he's even older than I am, which is saying something. <laughs> in good shape. Uh, but uh, yeah we it to there seems to be a lack of coordination on this subject and you know yes there's a religious angle but the pope on occasion has said you know there's no reason there can't be beings like us out there hmm. uh so he wasn't brushing it aside but a lot of people uh there are some church people who say we are it all the uh, some some leaders have said all the intelligent beings in the universe are right here on planet Earth. And there are sometimes, when you say, are any? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> say?
0: Right. No, that's, So where do you see the, the future of ufology going? Do you think we're going to get to a point where the vast majority of people will just be convinced by whatever evidence is out there, or, or how do we go
1: from here? Well, I think we're already there. But what we do about that, you'd think, I, I think, The last number I heard is 192 countries in the world, which seems rather uh, absurd. I I think that there will be – I mean, I I was really excited about the article in the New York Times on December 16th, uh, talking about the secret group that had been around from uh, 2007 to 2012, uh, Luis Elizondo and others, And I've been waiting for the other shoe to drop. So where are the reports, guys? They spent $22 million. I want to see some paper. You know, uh, so I'm hoping that that was just the beginning, that there's some shenanigans going on, discussions about how should we break this. And, uh, you know, people forget there isn't anybody who speaks for planet Earth, as far as I know. Hmm uh you know who who are the aliens gonna negotiate with <laughs> <laughs> well you know we're we're a threat to the neighborhood, as I say, one reason uh anybody would come here is to keep us from going out there mm-hmm. yeah, you know, who would want us? you know how have we demonstrated the ability to do anything sensible on a large scale so uh I don't know where we're going from here on that, but I, I certainly feel that the kids—not many of the kids—are saying we're alone. You know, maybe there's too much Star Wars, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it doesn't shock them the way it shocked, uh, you know, 60 years ago. Uh, there were plenty of people say so you can't get here from there, and you can't keep secrets, and blah blah blah, A bunch of baloney. Right. So. I'm still optimistic. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing, which is to communicate. Uh, and any incidentally, anybody who wants uh, autograph copies of my books, go to my website triple w dot stanton friedman f r i e d m a n dot com. And I do personally uh, autograph everything that goes out. And you know, there's a lot more to the subject. Than just uh, wham bam, look at that thing fly. Uh, how do we change our behavior? How are we gonna convince aliens that we're okay? You know, for all I... and one thing that has been good, got a recent um, bibliography, and when I in one of my books, uh, top secret magic about Operation Majestic 12, I listed ten. Ph.D. theses that had been done about UFOs uh, and now there were at least 40 on a recent list that I got so there's more attention going on in academic circles than there used to mm. be and uh, that makes me optimistic uh, I'm not saying they're all great reading or anything like that right? but they're moving in the right direction but people are taking it seriously
0: well and I you know, hope it continues to move in that way. It's definitely a topic which deserves a lot of attention. And, um, you know, yep. there's so much we could talk about it with, but uh, we're up against the clock. But thanks so much for coming on. You shared a, really a lot of um, enlightening information, and it was great to hear it.
1: My pleasure. I, I love, you know, I grew up with radio, so I'm comfortable with radio. I can do it at 2 o'clock in the morning in my pajamas. I can't do television <laughs> that way.
0: <laughs> oh, it's a great platform. And, um I hope to hear yeah. more from you in the future.
1: Okay. All right. My pleasure to be Thank on. Thank you. Thanks
0: a lot. Bye. Bye. That was Stanton Friedman, a nuclear physicist and um, really an extremely knowledgeable ufologist. Um, so that's our show for today. We'll be back next week with a new episode, a new topic. Be sure to tune in then. Until next time, this has been A.J. Bruno for The A.J. Bruno Show. So long and goodbye for now.